I have to wonder if I would do better in my own scripture memory if I incorporated some of the things Elijah does, like the Lord is strong, you know. <laughs> Maybe it would help me remember some of those things. I don't know. If you had a fire that destroyed everything and you could save just a few things, what would you save? Now, unfortunately, we have some families right here in the church who understand that question from real-life experience, right, Jim? And not rhetorically, kind of like the rest of us would. Would you save your TV? Would you save your clothes, your furniture, your appliances? No, I think most people would tell you that first they'd make sure that their loved ones were safe. And then I think if they could do so safely, they would save the things that represented important memories of loved ones, things that spoke something about people and memories, things like pictures, rings, mementos. Those important things represent a person. They represent a relationship. I think that's what they'd save. They tell part of the story of that person's life and our relationship with them. Think about this analogy as we move along. All the other things are replaceable, but some of these things that we'd prioritize in trying to save are not replaceable. There are things in our lives that we consider to be of great value, absolutely precious to us. In the words of one commercial, which you've heard again and again, priceless. More valuable than the things the world would normally consider valuable, more valuable than diamonds or riches or gold. We protect those things that we value greatly. We miss them when they're gone. These are the things in our lives that are precious, like family and relationships and the things that relate to those. Now, just a few weeks ago, the VBS theme was Gold Rush. And the idea, of course, was that the rock of ages, Jesus our Lord, is the most valuable thing we can know or attain to or desire. Much more valuable and precious than gold or silver or any material thing we could think of. We can all think of those things that are precious to us. If you'll turn with me to our scripture text this morning, it's Psalm 19. We'll read about something that's more precious still, more to be desired than any of those things that we could think of this morning. We're going to read from Psalm 19, beginning with verses, uh, verse 7. We'll read through verse 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now David, he was the psalmist who wrote this particular psalm. He imagined the most precious, the most costly thing of his day that he could think of. Gold. Not just any gold, but a lot of it. And pure gold. And essentially what he's saying in, the, in this psalm is that even though it's very true that gold is in fact precious, it's something that's desired or yearned for or longed for, very valuable. He says the word of God is more precious still. 
It's more to be desired, yearned for, and longed for than the most precious thing that we could think of. Now, if it's true that the Word of God truly is more precious than gold, or as the New American Standard renders that passage, more desirable than gold, why would anyone need to encourage us to read it, to study it, to memorize it, or hear it preached? Let's think of it this way. If someone came in here with a pile of money amounting to over a million dollars, and they said, it's yours, take with it, do whatever you will with it, how much encouragement would you need to come up here and take it and use it and spend it? Not very much. I believe there are a couple of reasons we need a constant, regular reminder to use, to take advantage of this precious gift that God has given us in his word. One is that abundance causes complacency. We all have an abundance of Bibles. Most of us have a couple dozen in our homes. Different translations, different sizes. We have children's Bibles, we have men's Bibles, we have women's study Bibles, we have teen study Bibles. You name it, we have it. Now, let me tell you, I don't, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having these kinds of Bibles in our homes. I think it's great. And I'm thankful for the abundance that we have. You realize this is the first time relatively in human history that we've had this kind of abundance of Scripture access. But it's ironic that in so many of our homes, we have so many Bibles, and so many of us don't use them regularly. Now, research shows that the majority of all born-again Christians read the Bible once or twice a week or not at all. According to one study, only 18% of all Christians said they read the Word every day. Another 18% read the Bible between three and six days a week. 37% read it once or twice a week. And 23% of Christians don't read the Bible at all. Now, I don't know where you fit into these statistics this morning, and I don't want a show of hands. But as we look at David's psalm here this morning, in which he outlines for us why God's Word is so precious, so much to be desired, think honestly before God, where do you fit into these statistics? I don't want to get legalistic here this morning. Let me be very clear about that. There are many benefits to reading the Word, as we'll see this morning. Yet, you can't earn any favor from God by reading your Bible. But let me say this too. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, why wouldn't you want to know Him better? The Bible is God's revelation of Himself. It's how we get to know Him better. Reading the Word is not just for preachers. I don't read the Word just so I can preach it to you. I read the Word for me because I need it. Now, why do I need it? Why do you need it? David tells us, at least in part, in these few short verses that we read in Psalm 19. In verse 7 of our text, David writes that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now let's consider for a moment this word law. It's not a word that we are excited by very much because to us it usually means restrictions, it means rules, it means regulations. We think of it as something that tells us what we can't do. And of course, that's true for many laws, 
We can't drive 150 miles per hour on the highway. We can't allow our five-year-old children to drive cars. The law also tells us what we must do. We must have our children under 18 in school, either public, private, or homeschool. We must have a license to practice medicine. And I wish, I have to say that uh, for you doctors out there, Chris, I guess you're the only doc here today, I have to say that I, hmm? Miled, I'm sorry, Miled's here too. I wish you'd do your practicing before you get to me. When you get to me, I don't want you practicing, I want you doing medicine, okay? Just a little sidebar. So the common denominator of most secular laws and most biblical laws is protection and instruction. And that's what law means here in this passage of Scripture. The Hebrew word Torah means direction, instruction, teaching. So we see laws as things like traffic laws and criminal laws and civic laws. But in the Bible, the law means, literally, it means the way to walk. Or in other words, it's how we live our lives. We see that in Psalm 119, verse 1, where it said, Blessed are are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to, that is, they live their lives according to the law of the Lord. The word can refer to the whole of the law or to particular parts of it. So the law that says we can't drive 150 miles an hour on the highway is teaching us something, especially when we consider why we have that law. It's telling us that we'll have a harder time controlling our vehicles. Our reaction time is compressed. It's more dangerous to you and to others to drive that fast. So it's against the law. The law here is protective. It's instructive. One commentary noted about the Torah, the central idea of Torah is that of instruction received from a superior authority on how to live. Torah in the Old Testament came to mean the way of life for faithful Israelites. The Torah is more than just laws. It includes the story of God's dealing with humankind and with Israel. That brings us to another important point about the passage we read at, at the outset in Psalm 19. It reveals to us a God who has made a covenant with the people of Israel. And when we consider the whole of Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments, it reveals God's character. It reveals his faithfulness in dealing with all people, starting with his chosen people, the Jews, and then with the rest of mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus. Think about this for a minute. God reveals himself to us through his word. It's a simple but very profound thing for us to note. Knowing God is the most important thing in life. It's more important than material possessions. It's more important than any other relationship we have. It's more important than food and clothing and shelter. And it's not that those other things aren't important. Because God created us fundamentally for a relationship with himself, we need to have a way to know him. To know him, he must reveal himself to us. He does this for everybody, in part through general revelation, which is found in creation and human experience. We won't read the whole thing this morning, but this psalm we just read from, Psalm 19, is clearly about God's revelation, his revealing of himself, his nature, his character. If you were to read the first six verses, you would see God's revelation in creation. Let me read just the first two from Psalm 19. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Creation's talking to us, folks. That's what this psalm is telling us. Then the verses we read here this morning in verses 7 through 11 speak of God's revelation in his word. The last part of this psalm, verses 12 through 14, show David's response to what he's written about in the previous verses. So the psalm first looks at God's natural, general revelation in his acts of creation. And then it looks at his specific revelation of himself in the word of God. And finally, this brings from David a response of self-examination. The Bible is God's specific written revelation of who he is and what he has done in redemptive history. Through God's written word, his people may overcome error, grow in sanctification, that is, be changed into the image of Christ, minister effectively to others, and live abundant lives as God intends. So I'd encourage you sometime this week, maybe, to read the whole psalm, read all of Psalm 19, and look for some of these things that we just uh, talked about. When we think of the law, we often think of something that keeps us from having fun. But here we see the opposite. Law that revives us, makes us wise, gives joy to the heart, gives light to the eyes, warns us, and rewards us. That's because God's laws are guidelines and lights for our path rather than chains on our hands and feet. They point at danger and warn us and then point at success and guide us. Now it's important to note too that while the different words that David uses to describe God's word do describe maybe slightly different aspects of God's revelation, essentially these words are used as synonyms. That's their words having the same meaning or close to the same meaning as another word. Words like joyful, glad, elated, kind of the same thing, right? So when David says law, when he says testimony or statutes, when he says precepts, when he says commandments, when he says judgments, with all these words, he's referring to God's word, the scriptures of his day. For example, in verse 7, where the NIV says statutes, the New American Standard and King James Version say testimony, we have to recognize how these words were used in the Hebrew and in their context in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 16, the stone tablets brought down from the mountain by Moses, the Ten Commandments, right? They're called the testimony. And the ark or container used to carry these tablets is referred to as the ark of the testimony. They're the testimony because though we might think of them as rules, they do speak, as in a testimony, of God's wisdom. They speak of his love for us or his protection for us. So I guess I'm saying we needn't look for too many distinctions between the various words that David uses in the Psalms to describe the word of God and the words here specifically in Psalm 19. From a poetic perspective, these terms may be seen as synonymous, though from a theological perspective, they may be seen as all-embracing. In every sense and dimension, the Lord's Torah is good. It is perfect, sure, upright, pure, radiant, and true. Even the word fear 
That's an unusual word to be used synonymously with law. It is, in fact, used that way here. David writes of the fear of the Lord that it's enduring forever. David's telling us that this word of God is a permanent foundation for human life. Fear here is a synonym for the law because its purpose was to put fear into human hearts and thus impact the way we live. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear or revere me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. David also writes of the excellence of God's word. He describes it as perfect. When this Hebrew word is used of God, it points to the perfection of his righteousness and his faithfulness, his utter dependability. Put it in another way. When something is perfect, it's all we need. When something is perfect, it's all we need. The word of God doesn't say everything there is to know about everything, but it's sufficient for what we need to know in order to know God and to follow him and serve him. You won't find how to operate a computer in the Bible, but you will find everything you need to know about serving God and knowing Him and following Him. It's His written self-revelation. Reading again from Psalm 19, let me read verse 7 and 8 from the New Living. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear giving insight for living. God has given his people sufficient revelation about himself so that we can know him, so that we can trust him, and so that we can obey him. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, From infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is a key point. We can't emphasize this too much. Believers should find freedom and encouragement in the knowledge that God has provided all of the absolutely authoritative instruction that they need in order to know him and live as he intends. God's people should never fear that he has withheld something they might need him to say in order for them to know how to please him, or that he will have to somehow supplement his word with new instructions for some new situation that arises in the modern age. Now, the New Testament does allow for the activity of the Holy Spirit in leading and guiding individuals. And here's some specific scripture examples where that's uh, referenced. But this guidance is always, always in line with scripture, never in opposition to scriptural commands. Therefore, believers should be satisfied with what scripture teaches and what it leaves unsaid. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This perspective is incredibly important for us to grasp and to hold on to 
and to understand. I read a story this week of someone who was in a well-known Christian church that encouraged people to rely more heavily on their spiritual intuition than on the Word of God. This is what this person wrote. She wrote, I spent months immersing myself into this church's teachings and music. I started engaging in what is called soaking. Soaking is a practice of opening your mind and spirit to the Lord while listening to loungy Christian music. I gave up reading my Bible because I wanted new revelation from God. I had heard mentioned in so many sermons that the Bible was being superseded by new revelations. The people who only read the Bible were called wordies. And these people, the wordies, were setting themselves up against the new spiritual move of God. The new spiritual movement was more important than the information in the Bible. So I gave up my regular Bible reading and embraced soaking. I got to tell you, folks, this just disturbs me and scares me when I read things like this. Let me tell you, King David, who wrote Psalm 19, says the word of God is sure or trustworthy. He tells us the word of God is perfect. He was clearly a wordy, huh? I'm a wordy too. This is a wordy church in the context of what we just read. Hopefully this won't be a wordy sermon. The word is our firm foundation, and nothing else can replace that foundation. When David wrote that the word of God is sure, this means firm or faithful to trust or believe in, to be permanent or quiet, to be true or certain. It means we can count on it. We can rely on it. We can depend on it. You know what? We can't say those same things about other ways that we might hear from God. Perhaps the greatest news to us about what David is describing in Psalm 19 are the benefits of God's revelation to us in his word. In verse 7, he writes that this perfect law of God revives the soul. Other translation says it restores or it converts the soul. Let's face it, our souls need revival. You know, even if we're walking wholeheartedly with God, we need revival. We need regular restoration. Life can be tough. You want to say amen to that? Life can be tough. It can wear us down. It can discourage us. When we're physically worn out, what do you need? You have to be physically revived. We need rest. We need food. We need water, right? When we're spiritually or emotionally worn out, we need the spiritual food, the spiritual sustenance, the spiritual rest, restoration, and revival that only God's Word can bring us. The Word of God provides nourishment for our souls, and it's not the spiritual junk food that we often feed our souls in an effort to revive and restore ourselves. Jesus said we can't live on bread alone, but on the Word. We read that in Matthew 4, 4. Jesus said it's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's interesting to note that in providing this counsel to us, Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy. He was quoting the Word of God. He was commending the Word of God as our source of nourishment, even as he was quoting the Word of God to prove his point. Many things in the world promise to nourish our souls, to restore 
and to revive us. In truth, only God's Word can truly accomplish this. In the second half of verse 7, we see another incredible benefit to God's Word. It says it makes wise the simple. This is where the understanding of the Hebrew word Torah, we looked at a few minutes ago, which is translated law, comes in. Remember, Torah means instruction, direction, teaching. It provides wisdom that we need to survive and the wisdom we need to thrive. There's wisdom in the law that keeps five-year-olds from driving cars. Wouldn't you agree? Without that wisdom, what would we have? We'd have little kids who not only cannot see over the steering wheel, but they can't read road signs. They can't make judgments in traffic situations, trying to navigate a couple of tons of steel down the road, putting her own life and everyone else's in danger. Over time, though, with instruction, with physical growth, with emotional growth, with age and growing wisdom and maturity, that little five-year-old will have grown to be old enough to get behind the wheel and to avoid the hazards to him or herself and everybody else. We can take that example and we can apply it to spiritual things as well. Five-year-olds are simple, aren't they? Now, that doesn't mean stupid. It means in our analogy here, there are some things they just haven't learned yet or developed the capacity to fully understand their actions. But what happens? We don't leave them there, do we? We teach, we instruct. We coach. We help them learn. Now, imagine the young Christian, like that five-year-old child. He or she doesn't understand the potential dangers of the spiritual life. He or she doesn't quite grasp the right way to do things. What do we encourage them to do? Do the basics. Read the Word. Hear it preached and taught. Memorize it. Pray. Fellowship. Fully invest in a church. Of course, it's not just young Christians that need this nurturing that the Word of God brings. St. Jerome said that the Scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Related to wisdom in verse 7 is what we see in verse 8 where it says the Word enlightens the eyes. It helps us see clearly. It lights our path. It illuminates spiritual danger. And it outlines the right path toward godly things, godly behavior, godly relationships. The Word reveals dimensions in truth and in reality that we just cannot see without that enlightening of the Word of God. Pastor and author John Piper says that a wise person is a person whose life makes sense in the light, the enlightening of reality. So, for example, self-denial will look foolish. And laying up treasures on earth will look wise only if you are in the dark about the reality of heaven and the danger of riches and the rewards of sacrifice. But if you live in the light of the reality of heaven and the reality of the danger of riches and the reality of the staggering rewards of sacrifice, then it makes sense to obey the command of the Lord to deny yourself for his sake. It is the path of wisdom. And where is the light of reality shining? Where do we go to get out of the kingdom of darkness, we go to the Word of God. All day long, unreality is being preached to you by the secular voices of the land. God is the essential reality. Everything disconnected from God is unreal in the way it was meant to function. Therefore, a world without God, our world, is mainly an unreal world, dazzling darkness, dazzling 
dizzying, deadly darkness. Say that five times real fast. How do you escape? The commandment of the Lord gives light to the eyes. The testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. Wisdom is a life that makes sense in the light of reality. And the light of reality shines from the Bible, not from the God-ignoring world. Finally, the word of the Lord brings joy. It's one of the many rewards that's referred to in verse 11. We see in verse 8 that because the word is right, it gives joy to the heart. Who doesn't want joy? None of us wants to live a gloomy existence or even just get by in life. Isn't that right? Joy is not dependent on circumstances. Good feelings dependent on circumstance, that's just happy. That's okay as far as it goes, but it's fleeting. But joy is dependent on God. David tells us that the word of God brings joy. It's the best source of a deep and lasting joy. And that brings us back to the beginning. It's such a great source of joy, a great source of direction, of truth, that David saw the word of God as the most precious thing he could imagine, the thing he desired most, above the happiness that riches of gold could bring, above the physical pleasure and sweetness that such a great treat as honey could bring. So I'll ask you again this morning, where do you fit into those statistics that we read earlier? I hope you're not one of those 23% who never read the Word of God. Based on what we've seen in this psalm, if you are, we could only classify you as foolish to ignore the wisdom, the enlightenment, the revival, the nourishment, the warnings, the rewards, the joy that come from the Word of God. The more you use your Bible, the more you get it into your mind and into your spirit, the more valuable it is to you, to your spirit, to your soul. So how do we respond? How do we respond? There's a lot of ways I think we could, and I hope you'll ask God as we close in a few minutes here how you should respond to this word today, what it means to you, and how God is speaking to you, but we'd like to highlight a very specific opportunity for you to respond, and I'd like Jody McIndarfer to come and share how memorizing passage of Scripture has impacted her life, and as she's coming, I want to read this passage of Scripture from Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Well, for me, it started spontaneously. Uh, last fall, our um, house church was studying Ephesians, and it was so rich that I kept thinking, oh, I had to memorize this someday. But I would put that on the back burner because I thought, oh man, <laughs> my scripture memory attempts sizzle out before they get started. But then a few weeks after that, Patty Eland, I overheard her say, oh, Ephesians is so good. I want to memorize it someday. So we got to talking and we realized that if we didn't have someone to be accountable to, we would not get very far with scripture memory. 
So that was our journey, and we purposed that every Thursday we would say our verses to each other. So I'm really glad that Bill asked me to share how God's Word has affected my life, not share James 1. <laughs> but I was encouraged to see Elijah share because a memory is not my strong suit. I have to do all kinds of things to help me memorize it, and it was refreshing to see that so does Elijah. <laughs> so some of those were the same. So because I see it, I feel like God has asked me to do a journey. So I call it my Ephesians Expedition. So Patty and I had no idea when we started out in Ephesians what it would do to our hearts. So because I see it as a journey, I thought I'd like to share with you four slides from my trip into Ephesians. The first one for me, the monumental stop, had to be Ephesians 1.5 because it says of God, his unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family. And so I saw this family, this circle of God that he was inviting us to be a part of. And then it says, by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And every time I say the verse, I literally am bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ because that's the only way to get to the Father. And then it says, it gave him great pleasure. So I'd say perspective and passion is one way the word of God has changed me. Because often I will be walking down the street or in the store or something, and this verse comes back and I see, oh, God's unchanging plan for that person is to adopt them into his own family by bringing them to himself through Jesus Christ. So that was the first monumental thing. The second stop on my trip in Ephesians was also Ephesians 1.19. And if I were to read this passage, I would say, oh, God wants us to know about his power. But when you have to memorize it, you can't take those shortcuts. You have to look at the words. And so I, this is called my power and prayer reminder because so many times in Ephesians, God, Paul is praying for the church. And it says, I pray that you will begin to understand not just know his power, but begin to understand. That kind of tells you it's going to be pretty big. And then it says the incredible greatness of his power. And this power isn't just for the super saints. It's for us who believe him. Then it defines the power as saying it is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. You have some of your water. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I call this kind of my Grand Canyon verse. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I hear that it's so big you can't take it in all at once. So that's another thing I have learned from um, Ephesians. The next stop for me was Ephesians 3.16. And this was kind of a whole paradigm shift about God's provision because I need to be honest with you. When anyone tells me the times are going to get worse, that we're in for hard times, something inside me wants to panic, and I want to get my little, my little resources, my limited provision, and I want to say, okay, can we ride out the storm? But this verse says to me, I pray that from God's um, glorious, unlimited resources, 
that he would give you mighty inner strength, the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, this verse has done something in my heart. When fear wants to creep in, I say to myself, I don't have to look at my little suitcase. I picture a fire hydrant full of water. God has glorious, unlimited resources available to us. Amen. I, my last slide for you is Ephesians 1, or no, sorry, 3.18. And it says, and may you have the power, again, to understand, as all God's people should, and then I would go through the antics, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep. But the more I was into God's word, the more I saw his love through the scripture. Now when I do it, I go, how wide, how long, how high, how deep? Because I feel like that's what the word of God is doing in my heart. It's stretching me bigger than I ever thought I could imagine. And as Jim Grinnell had in his sermon a couple weeks ago, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and I don't think ever in my Christian life have I felt that his word has been abiding as much as it has as every week. I'm, and memory is so hard for me. I can't cram every week. I get the shakes when Patty and I have to say our verses because I think I, I won't remember it. But having a partner, having accountability has, made, has forced me to uh, get into God's word, and the rewards are so great. So I would like to... Tr- it challenged all of you to take your travel log and ask the Lord where he would like you to travel. Ask him if there's a friend you want to go with on this journey. And I would like to be the first one that you show your slides to. Because I have a feeling that God's going to give you glimpses of him. And you can show me about the width of his wisdom or the length of his love. He might reveal the height of his holiness or the depth of his desires for you. This has been the most exciting journey I've ever taken. So, bon voyage. Thanks, Jody. This is is one way. There's a lot of ways we can respond. I'm going to back up to the... uh, slide we saw here that I think this really suggests a lot of ways and this is actually on the back of your bulletin. Jody and Patty came to the elders several weeks ago and asked if we could start an adult scripture memory program and I guess maybe at first we thought Bible Bowl for adults and uh, we thought that might be fun for a week or two but I don't know if that would really last. So the elders in their collective wisdom, said, keep it flexible and keep it simple, but we love the idea. And so this is what we came up with. First of all, it's not just for Elijah, okay? I mean, it was not a mistake that we had Elijah do that this morning because we're kind of hoping to shame and embarrass you and say, well, gee, if Elijah can do it, you can do it. Not really. Hey, I admit, Scripture memory is a lot harder when you get older. It really is. It's just a lot harder. And for Elijah... He just zips it out. I had one of my two daughters was the same way. She could just zip it out. For me, it is pulling teeth, man. It's hard. But it's a good habit to develop. It's a lifelong habit. We try to encourage the kids in Bible Bowl to make it a lifelong habit. So 
We're going to start this Passages Scripture Memory Program, and we see it as a simple way to encourage each other in memorizing the Word of God. We want you first to find a partner. As Jody mentioned, for most of us, we know not everybody's the same, but for most of us, having a partner is encouragement you need to develop the habit of Scripture memory. So find a partner, okay? Secondly, pick a passage. Now, memorizing individual passages of Scripture is just fine. But as Jody noted from her testimony, that when you go through a whole passage and you memorize it and you really get it in you, it makes a difference. It begins to change you. It begins to change your thinking and change your perspective. So we don't have a set standard on the length, but we suggest you have a passage of at least 10 verses so you can fully engage with the context of that. And then share encouragement. Share encouragement with your partner and with others who are involved in the program. And in September, at some point following a Sunday service, we're going to have a special meal for all those who have signed up to participate in the Passages Scripture Memory Program so you can share what's worked, what didn't work, gee, this has been hard, this has been an easy way to do it, and encourage one another in ongoing scripture memory. So we'll have a sign-up sheet in the North Foyer. Uh, that's just so we can know who's involved. Nobody's going to check up on you. We're not going to have a memory room with Coach Spencer or Coach Al or any other coaches in there to hear your verses, you and your partners. It's between you and your partner. We're not going to check up on you. You can do it at your own pace. It's simple, it's flexible, designed for maximum participation. And we want maximum participation because we believe in the importance and value of the Word of God in our lives. That's the main message here this morning, okay? We think it's important to hide God's Word in your heart, to read God's Word, to understand, study God's Word. So let me read again this passage that's on the screen. It's also in your bulletins. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. It seems to me that there's a lot of responses suggested in this passage of Scripture. So as we pray... Let me ask you to respond to the Lord to this message this morning. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for how precious your word is. More precious than gold. Heavenly Father, help us to grasp how precious your word is. Help us to grasp the ways your word can change us, can mold us, can play a part in molding us and shaping us into the image and likeness of Christ. And Father, that's our heart's desire, is we want to be more like Jesus. We know as we're more like Jesus, we can serve you better. We can serve you more fully, more, more wholeheartedly. So Father, help us to get the Word into our lives, whether that means being more faithful in reading the Word, whether that means memorizing it, studying it. Father, we do pray that the Word would truly impact our lives. Father, we thank You that we are a wordy church. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that You've given us a sense of the great integrity and value and strength and preciousness of the Word of God here. We pray that we will never, ever, ever lose that in this church. Thank You, Heavenly Father. Thank You, Lord God. Convict us, guide us, lead us, 
Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.